0: And if you were a worker who had no labor market experience with the higher minimum wage, uh, what we're seeing is that there are fewer of those types of new workers coming into Seattle's labor market. So it's it's becoming harder to, to get hired without prior experience.
1: You're listening to The Corbett Report. Hello, friends. James Corbett here. I have an excellent conversation lined up for you today. It's really fascinating, but unfortunately, I just want to let you know there are some dropouts in the conversation. Our Skype connection is crystal clear, and the audio is perfect, but it drops out here and there so that uh, we'll miss a few of the guest's words here and there. It's still understandable, but I just want to forewarn you that there's going to be some dropouts in the conversation. But stick with it. It is a really interesting conversation. I found it really uh, enlightening on a number of subjects. I hope you will too. Without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett at CorbettReport.com coming to you in a conversation that's being recorded in late March of 2019. And today, I'm honored to be joined on the line by Jacob Vigdor. He is a professor of public policy and governance at the Evans School of Public Affairs at the University of Washington. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he is also the principal investigator of the minimum wage study at the University of Washington, which is exploring the impact of minimum wage ordinances in Seattle and other cities. Today, we're going to be talking about what we can learn from Seattle's recent minimum wage increase. So, Jacob Vigdor, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Well, thanks for having me, James. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's 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 start with the basics. For those who don't know, tell us briefly about the Seattle minimum wage increase and when and how it came about.
0: So this all started back in 2014 uh, when Seattle City Council passed an ordinance raising the minimum wage in stages. Um, at the time the ordinance was passed, Washington State's minimum wage was $9.47 an hour. The policy Increase the minimum wage in phases up to $15 an hour on a different phase in schedule for businesses depending on their size and whether they offered health benefits. So the largest businesses reached the $15 an hour level on January 1st of 2017. Smaller businesses just reached the $15 level this year. Uh, January 1st of 2019. And so our efforts to to study this have really focused on the initial uh, years of the implementation in 2015 and 2016, the first steps up towards $15. All
1: right. So tell us about your interest in the subject, how that came about, and how the minimum wage study itself came about.
0: Sure. Well, I actually, I moved to Seattle uh, in, in the middle of 2014. So right about the time that I was packing up to move across the country to Seattle. Uh, This story about the minimum wage was making national headlines. And I arrived here and I I reached out to uh, one of my new colleagues here in the Evans School at, at UW. And asked him if anyone was planning to do anything about studying the minimum wage, since it seemed to be such a prominent issue. Um, And he mentioned that there was a team of faculty uh, who were going to get together to to talk about this and potentially to respond to a request for proposals that had come out from the city of Seattle. And so this was kind of one of the interesting things about it. In addition to passing this ordinance mandating the $15-an-hour wage, the city of Seattle also passed a resolution – calling for an independent academic study evaluating the impact of the minimum wage increase. So we got together uh, in the summer of 2014. We decided to put together a bid uh, for this contract, and uh, it turns out we were the only bidder. So that made the, the negotiations kind of easy.
1: As it, as it generally does, I suppose. <laughs> you don't yes. have to be an economist to understand that. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, and when did you actually start the study?
0: So we actually started our research activities in the early part of 2015. So um, we were getting our our application together in the summer of 2014. The city finally decided to fund us towards the end of 2014. And so we started out – Uh, making arrangements to get access to data to do the analysis. And then we also started developing some survey and interview protocols so that we could actually talk to people, uh, talk to workers and talk to businesses, uh, get their perspectives and and see how this minimum wage increasing was.
1: So you have released a number of uh, publications and working papers already under the umbrella of this minimum wage study. And I'm assuming that the activity here is ongoing. This is not a completed research study. Project.
0: Yes. Patrice Jardim just released a new report uh, from the Upjohn Institute uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, carrying on some of the work there. And some of the qualitative research is still ongoing, trying to figure out uh, themes to, to – there, there will definitely be more reports uh, in the years to come.
1: Well, from the layman's perspective, it doesn't seem like this is a complicated question to answer. I mean, you measure employment before and after the uh, the law goes into effect. You measure prices in core consumer goods to check for inflation. Maybe you measure average wages to see how much of an effect the was actually transferred um, based on the ordinance. But what nuances are the layman missing out there from this? What What is it that you're actually studying? And what, what's the challenges of measuring these? Yeah. Effects?
0: The the really big challenge is um, Seattle is not a place where nothing else is happening. Uh, one of the challenges that we faced from the beginning is Seattle is a booming economy. Uh, so you could imagine that something like a minimum wage increase – might have a little bit of a drag on the labor market, but it's in the context of a labor market that is dynamic and growing. The city is expanding in terms of population. There are lots of opportunities. So, so the biggest thing that we had to figure out was uh, what we call the counterfactual. So how do we come up with an estimate of what would have happened in Seattle if the minimum wage had not gone up? Uh, and this is sort of what we're trained to do uh This goes back to the the Carden Kruger analysis of the New Jersey minimum wage increase uh when they they took Pennsylvania to be the counterfactual in that case, so we needed our own Pennsylvania. Uh, The challenge for us being that all of our data were drawn from Washington state, and we couldn't go across state lines to say, look at Oregon or California. So what we did is we used data from the state of Washington to pick out regions outside the city that had a demonstrated track record of closely matching the labor market trends inside the city.
1: Tell us a little bit more about what kind of data you collected it and how you collected it. Um, as you mentioned briefly there, I think you have both quantitative data, but also qualitative data in, in terms of surveys and, and those types of things. And also, um, uh, I mean, what, what kind of data was most important for you? What, what, how do you measure the impact of minimum wage on low wage workers? What is defined as a low wage worker?
0: Well, that's that's kind of a, an, a the whole series of interesting conversations there. So, the the centerpiece of of the studies that we did was administrative data on the labor market. It's collected by a state agency, the Employment Security Department, and the reason they collect the data is to determine who's eligible for unemployment benefits in the case they separate from their job. So, the state government keeps track firm. Uh, how many hours they work, how much they're paid, calendar quarter by calendar quarter. We have access to that data going all the way back to 2005. So that allows us to build this model of how the labor market functions. Minimum wage starts increasing in the city of Seattle. So to complement that, we went to the city, the, the city of Seattle has a business license directory. So every Business operating in the city needs to register and you can look at this directory online. It's public information, it's got contact information. So we use this to 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 help us find business owners and managers who could respond to a survey. So we went out, we did a random sample of between five and six hundred businesses in the city of Seattle and we surveyed them repeatedly starting in 2015 but going back to them in 2016 going back to them in 2017 to just get their perspectives because in in the administrative data that we have on employment It doesn't tell us things like, well, what's happening to benefits uh, for these workers? Uh, What's happening to other parts of the business model? Are businesses raising prices? Are they adjusting their, their operating hours? What are they doing? So the survey gave us a chance to fill in a little bit of those gaps in the data Um, It turns out that one of the most difficult parts of our data collection uh, activity was trying to find a sample of low-wage workers in the city of Seattle because while the city does have a business license directory, it does not have any sort of worker directory. And about half of the people who work in the city of Seattle for low wages don't actually live in the city of Seattle. They live in the outskirts of the metropolitan region where the housing is cheaper. So that – it took a lot of effort and a lot of outreach to track down 50 different low wage working for adults who are raising children and trying to make ends meet on the basis of low wage work in Seattle. And so having these 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 different sources of data really helped us in terms of being able to get more of a three-dimensional picture of of what's going on. So the the administrative data was very comprehensive but it was very limited in terms of only really tracking how much people were paid, and how many hours they worked. Uh, in terms of understanding a little bit more about what people were experiencing or what businesses were thinking about this, it was very valuable to have these additional perspectives that came in with the qualitative data. And so we've been trying to sort of assemble those and and use the, the information that we gather in one methodology to help us understand what we're seeing uh, in the analysis using, say, a different data source.
1: Well, I think that's that's uh, very important, actually, and I'm glad that you were doing that. It probably gives some interesting perspective to just the, the, no- the raw numbers themselves. But just to make sure that I have this straight, the um, survey data that you did of low-wage workers was specifically targeted at uh, low-wage workers who had children and were raising a family on a minimum wage. Why did you exclude other forms of minimum?
0: Yes, well, the the main thing that, that we were interested in capturing there, um, when – Politicians argue to raise the minimum wage. Uh, These are the types of workers that they're most interested in. Uh, You see very few calls to raise the minimum wage because we we want to put more money in the pockets of teenagers who are living at home and who really don't have any real living expenses of their own. It's more about trying to help people for whom this is not a rung on a ladder. This is more of a dead-end job. Um, And they're doing what they can to make ends meet. And so we kind of realized that this was not going to be a representative sample of the low-wage workforce. Um, We really didn't have any prospects of collecting data on a sample that we could argue was representative just because these workers were so hard to find. So in this particular case, and and especially since – you kind of have to understand the goal of this qualitative data collection is not necessarily to come up with the kinds of impact estimates that we would get out of, say, a data analysis component. But it's more just to kind of fill out the details and and help us with the interpretation. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, One of the things that we heard uh, as as a potential response to the higher minimum wage is some workers might voluntarily reduce their hours. So if, all you have is low-wage work, and you're struggling to make ends meet in a very expensive city. You might be working two jobs. You might be working three jobs, 80 to 100 hours a week. And when the wage goes, down respond to that by actually sort of quitting one of your jobs. And so in the data, we might see employment going down. But if what is happening is a voluntary response by workers, then we think about that very differently than if it's a case of workers being involuntary. And so tracking these workers helped us to understand just exactly how common is it that workers respond to this wage increase by deciding, you know what, I am going to cut back. I'm making enough money to get by working fewer hours, and now I can spend more time with my kids or just doing other things that people like to do. All right. Then I guess the big question and the one that I suppose we could spend an hour talking
1: about, what did you find? (laughs) What are the main findings of the study?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah well uh, one of the most straightforward findings is we minimum wage policy caused wages to increase more than we would have expected um the the wage increases that we observed were actually kind of modest in comparison to the the magnitude of the minimum wage increase uh so we found that you know that if you think about it We're studying a period of time where the minimum wage increases about 35 percent from about $9.47 an hour to as high as $13 an hour. The wage increases that we imputed as a result of this were uh, closer to the the single digits – so there were maybe a 3% increase or a 5% increase depending on exactly who we're looking at. So it's relatively modest, and part of the lesson there is that this minimum wage increase was happening in the context of an inflationary labor market where the wages were sort of on their way up anyway. Um, but the really controversial findings that we had didn't have to do with wages. So the, the minimum wage raising wages was sort of not surprising. What we found that was was very surprising to people was this pattern where – the number of people we observed working in the low-wage labor market, hours we observed people working in the low-wage labor market, reduced significantly. And uh, you know, we generally found that the reductions in hours were sufficient to completely offset the increase in wages. So the total amount paid out in the low-wage labor market declined. That was sort of the the punchline of the first paper we released, and and that was back in the summer of 2017. And then we came out with this follow-up paper, which added a lot more nuance to the story. And what we did there, instead of just tallying up the number of jobs or the number of hours worked, we saw in the data and track them forward and understand what was happening to them. And so there, the story was a little bit different. What we found… Experienced workers – so workers who by the time the minimum wage starts going up, by and large, did fine. Their wages went up. They did not have any reduction in the likelihood of remaining employed. So they, they didn't necessarily lose their jobs as a consequence of the minimum wage. They saw some slight reduction in the hours that they worked. But overall, we found that they came out ahead to the order of about $20 a week. The less experienced workers, we did see that their wages went up, but we saw them have a, a proportionately larger decrease in their hours, and so they ended up more or less breaking even, you know, give or take. Um, so what this – with the picture that ends up being painted by all these uh, patterns is that the, the people who we were really um, most concerned about, the people who had been in the low-wage labor market for a longer period of time, they do look like they are coming out ahead. But when we ask the question, where do these overall job losses come from, it comes from the greater reduction in hours for inexperienced workers. And if you were a worker who had no labor market experience with the higher minimum wage, uh, what we're seeing is that there are fewer of those types of new workers coming into Seattle's labor market. So it's, it's becoming harder to, to get hired without prior experience. And that that is one example of a piece of information that we got from, say, the, the administrative data analysis that was by what we were hearing in our surveys with business owners who were telling us, look, if I'm going to hire someone for $13, $15 an hour, I want somebody who is experienced. I want somebody who I don't have to train on the job. So you just put that in a very
1: nuanced and detailed way. Let me butcher it with a uh, horrible analogy. So, uh, uh, is it correct to characterize this as saying the people who are on the ladder, um, some of the people on the bottom rung of that ladder have been helped up the ladder, but the bottom rung has been cut at the same time. So new people have a much harder time getting on that bottom rung of the ladder.
0: Uh, that's actually the, the way that I put it a lot of times when I'm talking to people. So you could imagine the, a, a minimum wage policy is basically saying we're going to saw off the bottom rung of this ladder. Uh, so, so with the idea being that this will just sort of the, – the hope is that this moves people up to higher rungs on the ladder. And some of them – some of those workers that we saw on the bottom rung, they, they did elevate to a higher rung. Um, but there is another group of workers for whom it has become harder to to break in to the labor market as a consequence of this. So if you if you think about it, uh, another theme that we got in our interview and survey data uh, with business owners was the expectation that, okay, everybody's just going to need to be a little bit more productive now. Uh, so people are going to need to step it up. Uh, we might adjust our operating hours and sort of not, not have people on the clock during times of day business is slow um so in in those sorts of situations if the productivity expectations are higher there are people who do their jobs relatively well who have the experience to know how to work more efficiently and they can make it to that higher rung um but it comes at the cost of fewer opportunities to get that experience at the beginning of your career
1: Very interesting. And I think, as you say, this relates into the policy debate, because the policy is generally centered around the people who are trying to support a family on minimum wage and how can they have a a living wage. So the emphasis is not on, say, the teenager who's looking for their first job ever entering into the market. The emphasis is more on people who have been in the industry for some time. So it seems from a policy perspective, if we are concentrating more on the people who who are trying to feed a family based on minimum wage labor, this is helpful to some extent, um, but this is going to hurt another demographic that we're not necessarily concentrating on.
0: So, yes. And I think what that points out is that we we have to think a little bit about what, what consequences there are for these younger workers, for these teenagers who are now going to be seeing greater difficulty in finding work. Um, Seattle happens to be a place demographically where unusual compared to most American cities. We actually don't have a large population of children and adolescents uh, here. Uh, That goes back to housing costs. It's very expensive to try to raise a family in Seattle, and, and so fewer families try to do it. So, so it's maybe a little bit less of a problem for us uh, demographically, uh, but then, you know, I, I think the way you want to think about this is, uh, you know, for for certain teenagers, that first check their entry into the labor market, and from there, they might not go on to higher education. They might decide that a work career is the way that they're going to go from their teenage years. If we think to ourselves, well, we're just going to channel these younger workers into getting more training, into more higher education opportunities, whether those are more academic or vocational, then maybe we think that we've got the plan all worked out, that for these younger workers who are no longer going to find the entry-level positions out there or find them harder to come by, the message is going to be stay in school Go out and get a credential, whether that's a a degree or a certificate or something, and then you don't have to worry about ever being in the low-wage labor market again. And certainly here in the city of Seattle, uh, there is tremendous demand uh, for skilled blue-collar trades, uh, whether it's something like being an electrician or a welder, because we still have some industry and there's lots of construction jobs uh, here in the city. And, of course, uh, the market for people with higher education uh, is here in the city. So if that's our vision of the future, our vision of the future is that, you know, the, the adults who are working low wage jobs, we want to make these jobs pay sufficient amount uh, and then for everyone who is locked out of that labor market because of this regulation will have other policies, other routes for them to make their living down the road, uh, then maybe this all works out. And it's a perspective that I actually heard people say, which is, well, many of these jobs in the low-wage labor market are not long for this world uh, because of technological innovation, because of uh, you know the manufacturing jobs that were paying low wages here in Seattle. There were a few of them, but they are moving to other parts of the world that have lower labor costs. Uh, so maybe we want to be putting the low-wage labor market on this, this glide path where um, – You know, we're imagining a future where people don't really rely on that type of work because that type of work is going to be hard to come by. Right.
1: And let's talk about the type of work that is involved in this, because one thing that I find interesting about the minimum wage conversation in general is that it almost always concentrates on the restaurant industry in particular, um, food service generally, but but really restaurant workers is where. A lot of this conversation focuses, and I find I, I note with some some degree of irony. Your recent conversation with Russ Roberts on Econ Talk, you spent at least half an hour talking about restaurant workers and and that industry, and then noted, but actually most most of the low wage workers aren't in the restaurant <laughs> business. So, so what what are some of the other industries that that uh, that are affected by this? And w- w- sure. I- I- and if restaurant workers are not the the largest segment of the low wage working population, what industry does
0: that? Is accounted for there. In in our data, we found about 70% of the low wage workers in the city of Seattle worked outside the restaurant industry. And you find them all over the economy, uh, as a matter of fact, and more concentrated in some industries than others, uh, but the caregiving industries. So whether it's child care centers or uh, elder care centers, uh, they tend to use a lot of low wage labor. Um, th- there are actually a lot of low wage jobs in the healthcare care industry. Uh, so not skilled professions, not doctors, not nurses, uh, but there's a lot of work to be done in the healthcare industry that is more uh, about food preparation and food service. It is about custodial services, uh, and these are lower-paid positions. Um, retail trade. A lot of lower-wage jobs in the retail industry, in the accommodation industry, in the entertainment industry, the people who work at movie theaters and and other types of of businesses like that. But every single sector of the economy where you look, even in, in, say, the finance sector, where you tend to think of the positions as being higher paid, there's even a small number of lower-wage jobs there. And those might be jobs that are are kind of people working in the mailroom or just someone's kid who had a summer job just sort of answering the phone. Um, There's a little bit of low-wage work all over the place. Uh, We tend to focus on restaurants because restaurants have a a relatively high percent of low-wage workers, but they are definitely the minority in terms of where you find low-wage workers in the economy.
1: So did you study and did you find a difference in the way that this ordinance has affected different sectors of the economy?
0: So we have done some work to look at these kinds of sectoral differences. Um, In our work, we focused on the restaurant industry, and and we actually found that low-wage work in the restaurant industry looked like it was declining in terms of hours. Uh, about the same as the industry as a whole. There are certain sectors uh, such as – so if we talk about some of these caregiving industries, uh, we talk about child care, we talk about elder care, there are often staffing regulations. Uh, so if you are uh, in a, a a home that provides care – to a certain number of elderly individuals, uh, you can't just cut your staffing below some level because there there are regulations that say for every so many residents that you serve, you need to have exactly this many staff at all hours of the day. So in those circumstances, we see a little bit less of an impact on employment, but then there are other mechanisms by which these centers can try to to make ends meet. I mean, they might end up charging a little bit more uh, for their services. They might find other ways to to cut corners a little bit in terms of keeping their costs down. Um, We actually spent, uh, we had a special segment of the study uh, that was uh, headed by my colleague, Scott Allard, looking at how nonprofits respond to uh, the, the minimum wage increase. And so these might be organizations that serve the poor, they might be different types of community organizations. And the message that we heard from many of these organizations was that paying higher wages was consistent with the mission of the organization. But for a nonprofit, the challenge is that there's not necessarily a lot of money to pay these higher wages. And so some of these organizations said that they would maybe rely a little bit more on volunteer labor rather than paid labor, or they would try to go and renegotiate contracts if they have contracts to provide care. So there are different strategies, there are different constraints, different facts of life uh, when you're operating a business in different sectors that that constrain how well you can respond. And so those are kind of important. And and one of the really big uh, determining factors is all about competition. There are some businesses in the city of Seattle that face a lot of competition uh, because they're selling something and they're competing against other businesses that don't don't they don't operate in the city. So I got a phone call once from a manufacturer who said, "I am committed to manufacturing products in the United States. I'm competing against other companies that manufacture in China, um, and." With the wage increases in Seattle, I'm going to stay in the United States, but I'm moving to Nevada. I'm moving out of state. I'm going to go someplace where the wage costs are lower. Um, so if you are competing on a global marketplace, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to uh, to deal with these very localized li- – um, whereas a, a restaurant – this is one of the things that makes the restaurant industry different. Um, you know, A restaurant in the city of Seattle is not competing against a restaurant in China. Uh, because if, if you're hungry now, you, you can't travel 12 hours to get to China to go eat. You're going to eat in Seattle. And so this is one of the things, actually, that the restaurant industry has going for it, is they have a more localized market.
1: Now, I've never even visited Seattle, so this is all just speculation on my part. But it seems to me that Seattle would be an area where more a, a greater percentage of the businesses depend on selling and in the local economy rather than certain other areas of the United States where you may imagine there would be more of a a manufacturing base that could be offshored more easily. Is that that something that you've thought of, and is that something that could be measured in some way?
0: Yeah, Seattle is changing a lot over time. Once upon a time, it really was a blue-collar town. Uh, And if you go back to, say, uh, the World War II era, um, what really made Seattle into a large city was the aircraft industry. Uh, Boeing continues to be one of the largest employers in this region right now. Uh, they actually operate manufacturing facilities that are mostly outside the city of Seattle, but nearby, uh, you know, within an hour's drive. And so, but, you know, Boeing's heyday was a few decades ago, and what really has driven growth in Seattle in the past decade or two has been the knowledge industry. So we are the headquarters, for now, we are the the sole Amazon. Uh, we have Microsoft, which is not in the city of Seattle, but just outside the city, uh, a few miles away in Redmond. Um, so these industries. So you know, what does Seattle export to the world now? For for the most part, the Seattle region exports knowledge goods, software, um, and Amazon is in all sorts of different markets. But really, if you look at what the workers do here in Seattle, they do a lot of computer-related activities. The low-wage component of our workforce really is the service sector. It is providing services for the people of the city, whether those services are meals, uh, whether it's haircuts, uh, whether it is just selling retail goods, dry cleaning, all sorts of different things that any city needs. And these are industries, for the most part, Where, you know, if you are working for Amazon and you're being paid very well because you have a highly specialized skill set, you're going to patronize the local businesses because, you know, that's that's where you live. And so, in some sense, Seattle is is kind of a a best case scenario for raising wages at the bottom because there is so much money in the city that is derived from the employment of very highly skilled workers in these high-tech industries Um, across the United States uh, about 30 percent of adults have a college degree in the city of Seattle 60 adults have a college degree and if you look at the uh, 70,000 over the past about 10 years Seattle has added 70,000 adult residents and virtually all of them have college degrees so it makes it a very unusual labor market. It's it's a city where there's a lot going on, where there's a lot of growth. At the same time, it's becoming more expensive and harder for low lower-income workers to make ends meet.
1: You know, something that just occurred to me that I actually hadn't thought of until you were just speaking there is that a lot of people in, or I don't know a lot, but anyway, some significant proportion of people in low-wage work um, receive a significant proportion of their income in the form of gratuities. That it is not simply their wage that they are work, working for. It is in, in terms of wait staff, for example. I mean, a significant proportion of their income is gratuities, which I'm assuming you have no way of measuring or getting a handle on that. So, I mean, how do you incorporate that into this analysis?
0: Yeah, yeah. I. I so gratuities are complicated. By law... Gratuities are supposed to be reported as income, and in our administrative data, they should be there. Now, the word that we've received through back channels is that it's not necessarily the case. And so when we observe some of the wage increases in the restaurant industry, one of the things we have to be on the lookout for is this may be a situation where uh, a, a, a restaurant owner has decided that, okay, I am now going to report more gratuity income officially, so that I can show that I'm complying with these higher wage requirements. But you know, in reality, the the workers are not earning any more than they used to. It's just that their reported earnings go up. And yet, I mean, you can y- you you will hear from some people in tipped occupations uh, here in the city who grumble a little bit uh, because they kind of they thought they were doing fine in a model where a lot of the income comes to them. It's not necessarily reported. They don't necessarily pay taxes on it. So in terms of uh, what this means for our analysis, uh, there's not a whole lot that we can do. Uh, we, we know that not it's, it's not just that there's, there's certain income that's invisible to us. In some cases, there are entire jobs that are invisible to us. So... Um, you know, suppose that you have a restaurant that employs a delivery driver. So, if they actually employ a delivery driver, uh, that's that person's earnings and hours would be reported to us. But another way you can get food is by contracting with a third party. So, you go to Uber Eats or to Grubhub or one of these other delivery companies, and the person delivering the food doesn't work for your restaurant. They work uh, – the, in fact, they're an independent contractor. They anyone. That job does not appear in our data. And so this is one of the caveats we have to tell people about is that if, if one of the ways that businesses react to the higher wage costs is by doing more of this kind of outsourcing and using more independent contractors who are invisible in our data, that could lead us to overstate – the, the job losses.
1: Yeah, this is one of those topics, the more you think about it, the more complicated it becomes. I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to become yeah, educated really here. <laughs> All uh, right, well, so what were your expectations going into this study and what has surprised you about the data?
0: So I, I think I, I gave an interview early on in the process before we had even really touched any data. And what I said you know, this this is going to be it's, – it's hard to imagine that this is a policy that's going to be just bad for everybody. Um, but it's also hard to imagine that this is a policy that's going to be just good for everybody, uh, that it's going to be some combination of the two. That we've come up with kind of corroborate that. What I didn't really have a good sense of was how the the winners and losers would compare to one another. So there there was an argument that you could put together that um, the losses people that were trying to help, and that maybe the the workers who are finding an easier time finding work are the teenagers from affluent homes, who you know maybe they have easier access to transportation because they can just borrow their parents' car, whereas someone who is relying on take care of. They might be a less reliable employee or perceived as a less reliable employee. Maybe they come out on the short end. So the pattern that we observed was not necessarily something uh, that that I was expecting. Um, an- another thing that's been kind of surprising, you know, our data analysis, uh, we we haven't taken it, we have not taken it beyond 2016. Uh, because life gets complicated to us uh, for us starting in 2017 because the minimum wage starts going up in the rest of Washington state. And so you know if, if you go back to our, our basic statistical strategy, it's all about comparing what happens in Seattle to some other region where the minimum wage doesn't change. What I think is going on in the city of Seattle, um, the minimum wage, as high as it is in the city, is becoming – increasingly irrelevant because what we see going on is just this this general surge in the local economy. We have increasing demand for services because we have an affluent growing population. But at the same time, our low-wage workforce is shrinking because people just can't afford to live in this region uh, and on the basis of this low-wage work. We have a, a terrible housing shortage. We have a particular shortage – uh, of affordable or subsidized housing. If you wanted subsidized housing in the city of Seattle today, uh, there there is some, but it's in such high demand that you can't even get on the wait list. In fact, the last time they opened the wait list, they had a lottery. 20,000 people uh, applied for a lottery to get onto the wait list, and only 3,500 of them got onto the wait list and uh, they've only made it through about half that wait list. So it's, it's a waiting period of one to four years to get affordable housing in this city. So as dramatic as some of the results that we got are, uh, are if you look at the period uh, 2015 or 2016, uh, what I see happening in this city, I see businesses that are advertising for entry-level positions flipping burgers that are now paying more than the minimum wage. Just because it has become that hard to find workers uh, for these businesses. So, you know, if if you look at it, the minimum wage went up by more than $3 an hour between the beginning of 2015 and the beginning of 2016. It's now been in another three years, and the minimum wage has gone up just three more dollars. So, we're Really rapid increase in the minimum wage in that time period we were analyzing. But now that the wage increases have kind of moderated, we have sort of this this rising tide in Seattle that has completely swamped the effect of the regulation.
1: So once again, the government policy is getting out in front of a trend that's already in existence. And I'm sure local politicians are claiming credit for the booming economy.
0: <laughs> uh, well, everyone would like to take credit for it, I'm sure,
1: yes. All right. Um, Well, let's turn to some of the ways that your findings have been represented or misrepresented in the media. Sure. (laughs) And obviously your study has generated a lot of headlines. I will turn to one that's, well, particularly interesting uh, that I saw in Bloomberg Opinion um, just a, a few months ago. Uh, What Minimum Wage Foes Got Wrong About Seattle by Barry Ritholtz. And it's, uh, well, it's an interesting uh, take. He says, for example, the dire warnings about minimum wage increases keep proving to be wrong. So much so that in a new paper, the authors behind an earlier study predicting a negative impact have all but recanted their initial conclusions, linking to the minimum wage study. However, the authors still seem perplexed about why they went awry in the first place. Much of the hand-wringing was based upon a deeply flawed University of Washington study, As we noted in 2017, the study's fatal flaw was that its analysis excluded large multi-state businesses with more than one location. When thinking about the impact of raising minimum wages, one can't simply omit most of the biggest minimum wage employers in the region, such as McDonald's and other fast food chains or Walmart and other major retailers. These are the very employers that were the main target of the minimum wage law. Indeed, the law established an even higher minimum wage of $15.45 an hour for companies with 500 or more employees. There were two other glaring defects in the first study that are worth mentioning. The first is that its findings contradicted the vast majority of research on minimum wages. As was demonstrated back in 1994 by economists Alan Kruger and David Card, modest gradual wage increases have not been shown to reduce employment or hours worked in any significant way. Ignoring that body of research without a very good reason made the initial University of Washington study questionable at best. And then... Barry goes on to uh, take a personal ad hominem attack on you and your objectivity when it comes to this study. Uh, Jacob, your, your uh, thoughts on this characterization?
0: Well, where to begin? Um, I'd say that um, it's it's sort of been interesting, you know, when when the first in 2017, there were lots of partisan Comments about it. Uh, the the reaction on the right was of, of a knee jerk variety that said, ah, "Aha! This study proves that what we've been trying to tell you all along that, that minimum wages are catastrophic." Um, and the re- reaction on the left was, "Well, this you know this this study is flawed. I mean, we have it's true we have data limitations. Uh, we do the best in our in our work to try to understand what the implications of, of those limitations are, um, but because the the um the message in the 2017 paper was was just a pretty straightforward negative message that it it had a partisan valence and then the 2018 study comes along and we lose our partisan valence because we're basically saying okay it's So I I would not characterize us as as repudiating anything that we said. In fact, if you go back and read the 2017 paper, the possibility that some workers are coming out ahead, whereas other workers are are not, and it may be the more experienced workers that are doing better, that's a possibility that we actually mentioned. In the 2017 paper. And it's not as though we ignore the prior literature. We talk extensively about the prior literature in the paper. It, the, the prior literature focuses largely on the restaurant industry, which, as we mentioned a little while ago, is where only 30 percent of low-wage jobs are. So I, I found it particularly ironic that people would criticize us because it's it's true that our data don't allow us to study these multi-site employers, which, which constitute about they, they employ, as far as we can tell, about 38 percent of the low-wage workforce in Washington State, and so people are instead pointing to these studies that ignore the vast majority of low-wage employment because they only focus on a, a particular industry. So, so I I'd say you know, and and I was familiar with that Ritholtz column. I I read it uh, when it came out, um, but kind of odd to criticize us for sort of being ideolo- ideologically motivated. And then at the, I believe at the very end of that column, he talks about the fact that, well, okay, I mean, it was us. It was the same authors who came up with the second study, which is now being used uh, by people who didn't like the first study. So, so you know, okay, so either we're intellectually dishonest or um, or we're not, uh, we can't be both simultaneously.
1: I don't <laughs> yeah, no, think. no, it means you recanted your earlier study and you're <laughs> puzzled as to why you got it wrong. Yeah, there is a lot of very um, cheap swipes, I would say, in that. But unfortunately, that is, I think, characteristic of a lot of the ways that this has been represented in the media, or as I say, misrepresented. Um, because uh, it, there's just so much partisan bickering um, over the results of this. When Absolutely. it strikes me in our conversation today, it seems that Seattle probably wouldn't, this isn't the best test case that one could imagine for this type of how does minimum wage affect low wage workers. This probably isn't the best environment to be studying it in because of the nature of the, the economy yes. and the way it's booming. So there's going to be a lot of noise in these results. Well, Well, let's talk about some of the historical angle that might be excluded from this, because for example, Mr. Ritholtz was talking about 1994 and economists had already proven that there was no substantial impact. Well, why don't we go back a little bit further? Um, and I would like to do that by taking a look at a uh, paper that came out, I believe, about 14 years ago uh, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives by Thomas C. Leonard um, called Eugenics and Economics in the Progressive Era. And he's writing about the progressive era in which the first sort of idea of minimum wage and low wage uh, uh, living standards were were being considered um, by economists and he was talking about the progressive economists and i I just want to read a little bit about what he wrote there for example progressive economists like their neoclassical critics believed that binding minimum wage uh, binding minimum wages would cause job losses However, the progressive economists also believe that the job loss induced by minimum wages was a social benefit, as it performed the eugenic service ridding the labor force of the unemployable. Uh, Sidney uh, Sydney Webb and Beatrice Webb put it plainly, with regard to certain sections of the population, the unemployable, this unemployment is not a mark of social disease, but actually of social health, of all ways of dealing with these unfortunate parasites... Sydney Webb opined in the Journal of Political Economy, the most ruinous to the community is to allow them to unrestrainedly compete as wage earners. A, mi- a minimum wage has was seen to operate eugenically through two channels: by deterring prospective immigrants, and also by removing from employment the unemployable, who thus identified could be, for example, segregated in rural communities or sterilized. Uh, Columbia's Henry Rogers Seeger. A leading progressive economist who served as president of the AEA in 1922 provides an example. Worthy wage earners, Seeger argued, needed protection from the wearing competition of the casual, uh, casual worker and the drifter, and from the other unemployable who unfairly dragged down the wages of more deserving workers. The minimum wage protects deserving workers from the competition of the unfit by making it illegal to work for less. Seeger wrote, The operation of the minimum wage requirement would merely extend the definition of defectives to embrace all individuals, who even after having received special training, remain incapable of adequate self-support. And Seeger made clear that what would happen to those who, even after remedial training, could not earn the legal minimum wage... If we are to maintain a race that is to be made up of a capable, efficient, and independent individuals and family groups, we must courageously cut off lines of heredity that have proved, been proved to be undesirable by isolation or sterilization. Uh, Leonard then goes on to talk about Royal Meeker, a Princeton economist who served as Woodrow Wilson's U.S. Commissioner of Labor, who opposed a proposal to subsidize the wages of poor workers for this reason. Meeker preferred a wage floor because it would disemploy unfit workers and thereby enable their culling from the workforce. Quote, it is much better to enact a minimum wage law, even if it deprives these unfortunates of work, argued Meeker. Uh, better that the state should support the inefficient wholly and prevent the multiplication of the breed than subsidize incompetence and unthrift, enabling them to bring forth more of their kind. It goes on and on. There are many, many, many more examples in this Leonard article that I'll direct people to. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. But I, I, I realize from the economic perspective, it doesn't necessarily matter what these people arguing about the minimum wage or or uh, wage floors thought a hundred years ago. It doesn't matter as to what actually uh, comes from it. But it is interesting to note that this was a guiding philosophy for a lot of the people who were arguing for these types of laws a century ago. Uh, From your perspective, is this something that at all is even acknowledged in the debate, uh, the academic debate, over minimum wage in this day and age? And if not, why is this part of the history of minimum wage excluded
0: from the conversation? Well so it's 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 sort of interesting i, I the the Carden Kruger intervention in the literature uh, it, in, in 1994 is, is almost resetting the debate so you could you could read this history uh, the the association of and it's not just minimum wage policy that that ends up being associated with and, and a lot of these sentiments uh, immigration policy was tied up with these sentiments and uh, all sorts of things um there was a consensus that emerged sort of later on in the economics profession, but before 1994, to say that, okay, well, the, the minimum wage has these negative impacts. And so you could read some of that as being a recognition of the flaws in the arguments that were presented in the progressive era. Um, and then you look at that and kruger intervention and, well, well hold on, uh, as it turns out, uh, maybe – these laws don't actually result in unemployment after all, and so if the message that people believe is that minimum wages don't cause unemployment, then the the easy way to just sort of get around this this sort of unseemly history of minimum wage policy is to say, well, you know, that those those folks back in the progressive era that were saying these nasty things. Um, they were assuming that the minimum wage would have these impacts on the labor market, but in fact they don't, so it's it's a moot point. Um, now I think we want to move forward, and if, if you look at what we're finding here in Seattle uh, during the period of time where it looks like the minimum wage was binding, of, of competition and, and the minimum wage as a means of restricting competition in the labor market um, – there's something to that, but I, I think that the way that it operates is as follows. Um, a lot of – I'm, I'm I'm the the, the father of, of two teenage kids, and I have an uh, 11-year-old to boot. Uh, so these younger kids, when they go out into the labor market, um, they are maybe – Looking to make a little bit of money, but they they don't need the money to pay the rent. They don't need the money to, to pay for food or clothing because you know they have parents to provide that for them. They're looking to work in part because they want experience. Uh, they're just looking for that kind of experience, and and their parents are probably telling them, "Look, it's it's a good thing to sort of learn the value of a dollar to just sort of get this get this sort of thing on your resume." Um, But from the perspective of someone who's in the labor market to try to feed a family, uh, competing with someone who is willing to work for almost any wage because the income is not really the main thing for them, that is the margin where we're really looking these days. Uh, The low-wage labor market is where you get uh, some folks who are there because they're trying to make a living and they're they're trying to cover their living expenses, and you have another set of employees – that are just not. Uh, they, they are not they, – they're in the labor market for a variety of reasons, but not because they will starve if they're unemployed. And so you think about this minimum wage regulation, and if it has the impact of sort of making it tougher for those younger workers to get into the workforce, then it, it starts to look a little bit more like a child labor law. Uh, in in effect. And so that's another progressive era uh, initiative that says, well, basically, there's this ruinous competition between adults and kids, and the kids are willing to do the work for a lot less, uh, in part because they don't have to support themselves. So I guess that's where the conversation ends up these days, um, but I, I think that if, if you were to point out to a minimum wage advocate that, that say, hey, you know, you, you should read this this historical literature that sort of shows that people advocated for this because they wanted to disemploy certain types of individuals, and the response is just going to be, well, okay, maybe that's what they argued back then, but they were wrong about the disemployment effects, so we'll just sort of set that aside.
1: Yeah, well, it seems an interesting thing to just set aside from the conversation when it was obviously so central to that conversation a century ago. But uh, as you say, uh, the conversation has moved on, and the unfit and unemployable in the current situation may be those teenage workers or or something like that, which is perhaps more politically uh, viable as a uh, as as something. But um, let's let's shift gears dramatically <laughs> because in okay. the pr- preparation for our conversation today, I was looking at your blog, the perfect and the free. And I saw this, um, post that you made up recently about P a P R S S the public access peer review, yes. for the social sciences website, which I'm, I'm delighted to see because it relates to something I've been talking about recently on the program. Just reading from your uh, blog post, why P a P R S S He said, today I launched a new website, PAPRSS.org, public access peer review for the social sciences. Here are the problems it seeks to solve. Historically, there were three fundamental rationales for academic journals. They disseminated work, they signaled the quality of work, and they subjected manuscripts to an editorial process that, in theory, improved them. Uh, Technology has rendered the dissemination function obsolete. In fact, by placing papers behind paywalls, academic journals often inhibit rather than promote the dissemination of research. And then moving on in the blog post, you say, PAPRSS seeks to give researchers the opportunity to receive referee report style feedback in a public forum where non-anonymous commenters can rebut or reinforce reviewer suggestions and authors can provide updates. It's closer in spirit to a conference session with discussant comments, as reviewers do not hide their identities and make comments for the public, and not solely for the author. As in the conference format, authors will have an opportunity to respond to a posted review, and others will have the opportunity to post moderated comments. The post goes on from there. Of course, I'll link the post and the PAPRSS website in the show notes for today's conversation, but uh, Jacob Vigdork, perhaps you can tell us about PAPRSS and why you decided to launch this website.
0: Sure. Well, it, it all goes down to um, the publication process. Uh, so in economics, the publication uh, we have a, a norm in, in, in economics journals that um, editors expect to see, in many cases, multiple rounds of revisions. Uh, the revisions can be extensive. Um, it's very common uh, for for research that's submitted for publication and peer review to take a period of two or three years uh, to actually appear in print. Um, And the world moves much faster than that these days. Um, And so there's this sense that this is not necessarily serving authors uh, perfectly. And and actually, the inspiration for, for putting this website together actually was derived from what happened to us When we released our minimum wage study in 2017, because what happened there was we released a study on a Monday that same day we had critiques of our study published online uh, because there was that much interest in it. Uh, and, of course, the critiques in some cases might have been politically motivated or motivated by who knows what. But nonetheless, there erupted this public dialogue – and it was a, a critical dialogue, but it was a critical dialogue that where we actually had a rational conversation about the limitations of the data and the strategies that we employed to try to get around that, and it, it actually led us to, to revise the paper and improve it. And so in in thinking about this website, uh, and I just call it papers, P A P R S S is the acronym. I was
1: thinking, what is um, this acronym trying to do? Oh yeah, okay, <laughs> got
0: it. Yeah, so so the the idea here is, well, that that was actually not a bad experience to go through because it was basically um having this very broad conversation that happened in real time. And rather than go through this years-long process of of going out to peer review and hearing back from the editor and revising and all this, everything happened very rapidly and much closer to real time. And so uh, particularly for younger scholars uh, who are looking to get feedback on their work, uh, in in many cases, if you're an assistant professor who's trying – or say even a graduate student Who's who's hoping to get some feedback on a paper, but you know you you don't necessarily just want to email something to some senior person in the field because you know they don't know who you are. Um, this provides a forum where this kind of rapid feedback uh, in in close to real time can happen, and so it helps authors disseminate the work. It, it draws attention to the work because it's it's there, but then having the posted reviews also you know it, it but another experience of mine that went into this is that I, I will often read book reviews you know and, and I find that a lot of times reading book reviews is is uh, is is a really much more efficient way of understanding okay what is this book really about and and what are the the, the strong points and the weak points of, of the book and as economics papers are getting longer and longer our minimum wage paper by the time it's published might run a hundred pages uh, if you're just looking for a Easily digestible summary of what's in there and what the strong points are and what the weak points are. Something like a 500 to 1,000 word essay about it is going to be much easier to read and really, you know, hit hit the fine points there. This is a, sort of a, a little effort on my part to to try to introduce something that I think is missing in economics, which is it's a way for authors to get feedback and, and for conversations about ongoing research to take place. That just that that the way journals just can't fulfill that need. Absolutely. Well, again, I come at this from the
1: outside. I'm I'm not. I escaped academia, thankfully. But uh, but it seems so obvious to me that the technology today enables these types of broader conversations, open access, uh, pe- extended peer review, public participation. These are things that are coming, and yes. it just baffles me that most more academics don't see that and aren't getting They've in front already, of that trend. Yeah. So.
0: Computer scientists um, have more or less abandoned print journals. Uh, And nowadays, if you're a computer scientist, your goal is not to publish or perish, uh, because publication in the old-fashioned sense doesn't matter for your career anymore. And now it's more about, do you get invitations to present your work at prestigious conferences? And so it's a little bit closer to, to, you know, do you have access to these forums Uh, That is a determination for you. So I think that that there are some fields that really are kind of understanding the implications of the new technology and how much easier it is to disseminate work. Um, Economics is just a little bit behind the curve the social sciences in general
1: well then i'm very glad to see this initiative i really hope that people will at least check into it and i hope uh, other people in your field will will make uh, use of it and as i say i'll link the the website in the show notes for this Fantastic. conversation as well as all of the things we're talking about today are there any other specific resources or references that you'd like to leave people with that they can check out if they're interested in the topics that we're discussing today
0: Sure. Well, I, you, you've already mentioned my blog, The Perfect and the Free, so I, I will still occasionally post to, to that in more longer form. Uh, I am on it's just Jake Vigdor. Um, Sorry, you'll have to repeat that you and, dropped
1: out. You're on Twitter?
0: Oh, I'm on Twitter. Yes, my Twitter handle is just Jake Vigdor, uh, all one word. Um, and there i, I you know, it used to be that I would blog more frequently, and now I tweet a little bit more frequently. It's it, you know that there's a character limitation, but sometimes it's it's just easier to attract eyeballs to it. Um, those are the the main ways to keep track of of what I'm up to, and then of course our study, if the University of Washington minimum wage study. Google that. Our study does have a homepage at the uh, the Evans School of Public Policy here at the University of Washington. And we have links to all the papers that we've uh, written and disseminated on that and uh, and more resources uh, for those who are interested.
1: Okay, well, I thank you very much for your generous uh, donation of time to the, uh, the podcast here today. Thank you very much for coming on and discussing this. All right. Thank you, James. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy
0: at corbettreport.com support.